Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. everybody welcome back to another week of chasing frets my name is jason shadrick and i'm here with uh, andy ellis this week how you doing andy i am doing well it's nashville in the autumn and it's a sweet time it is and we are talking this week to larkin poe uh megan and rebecca sisters uh who uh, have really kind of caught my eye with a bunch of for years, with both the videos they put up online of them just jamming on tunes, and their latest record is called Kindred Spirits, and it's a collection of, of cover tunes that have influenced them over the years. And today's episode, we are going to talk about kind of their backstory in, in pre-Larkin Poe times, because they, uh, they grew up playing in a family bluegrass band. And we learn what happened to them before the family bluegrass band because they also played music. Very interesting. And they started on, as we learned today, they started on other instruments and they talk about their journey uh, kind of going from the classical to the bluegrass world and beyond. And it's just, it's super interesting and it's just super fun just to hear these two, uh, these two women kind of, (laughs) the dynamic between the sisters is is super fun to watch and and listen to. So uh, you can hit us up at chasingfrets at premierguitar.com. So here's our first episode this week with Larkin Poe. Today's podcast is sponsored by Vega Trem. The ultra-strong Vega Trem tremolo system provides incredible tuning stability and a musical, comfortable player experience with the widest range of up-and-down movement available. This double-action locking trem is easy to install and doesn't require any additional routing. Vega Trem, the tremolo reinvented. For more information, visit vegatrem.com. But we're here with Rebecca and Megan from Larkin Poe. How are you ladies doing today? Excellent. Good. Very well. And and we can see, we have you on Zoom here, but we can see that there's guitars in the background. And I figured two uh, guitar players, married to two guitar players, there are probably a lot of guitars around your house. Yeah. Too many, quite frankly. We have a no, Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I know, that's heresy, actually. Yeah. You, you might could be burned at the stake for a sentence like that. Says, too many guitars, not enough lap steel. <laughs> Ah, okay. Okay. So uh, we're so glad to have you join us this week on Chasing Frets. And today's topic is uh, one thing I've been, since I kind of first heard about your band and started to kind of do some research, is to talk kind of about pre-Larkin Poe, so to speak, and your family band you had uh, that was really uh, like a straight-up bluegrass band. And when you guys were growing up, how early do you remember playing music with your family? Interestingly, and this is Rebecca speaking, we started playing music hands-on as three and four-year-olds with classical violin and piano. 
that was our first hands-on introduction to making music. And that was always the three of us. It was Megan and myself and our eldest sister, Jessica. So from a very young age, we were involved in string quartets and symphonies and orchestras. Bless our mother. She drove us, you know, hours every week because we lived out in the boonies in northern Georgia to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to take us to all of our classical endeavors as kids. And I find it interesting that it wasn't until we hit our preteens that we actually became thoroughly introduced to bluegrass music. I mean, considering we were born in Knoxville, Tennessee, and raised in northern Georgia, there's like a lot of pick-in parties and operas and a lot of ways to get involved in roots music. Yeah. But it wasn't until our early teens that we went to the festival Merle Fest. Mm-hmm. And we were just absolutely blown away by by the music and the improvisation, like that was so foreign to us since mm. we were so just used to reading music off of a page. Yeah, because we'd always listened to bluegrass records. Our, our mother and father had stumbled upon the music of Alison Krauss and Jerry Douglas from a very, I, we were like maybe eight, nine years old listening mm-hmm. to bluegrass records, but we had never conceptualized like what it meant. Mm. So whenever we finally tapped into the bluegrass scene, I think it was mind blowing because you had this visceral experience of seeing the spontaneity and the passion and the music that heretofore we hadn't experienced as classical kids as much. So something really clicked whenever we went to Merlefest and, and jumped off. So which, uh, which one of you are playing what instruments? So we were both playing violin mm-hmm. and okay. piano. Yeah. Okay, you both were. All right. Doubled up. And what, what, was the, what was the age range between you two and your sister? So Jess, I'm the youngest and Jess is the eldest. And uh, there's okay. five years in between us. So Megan and I, we're we're very so we're close. all very close. There's three yeah. between the two of us, and then we're very close. We're like twinsies. Yeah. <laughs> so was so were your parents musicians? No, both of our parents were doctors. Funnily enough, and I think wow. while they while they were very excited about us having a hobby, they never intended it to be a career. So su- surprise on you folks. But they're huge yeah. music lovers yeah. and they have really good taste in music. Like they listen to everything from Ozzy to, you know, classical music mm-hmm. um, and everything in between. So they're, they're, they're great lovers of music. Yeah. I, I think in a way that's almost more important. I, I, I mean, he's a father as well, who is a musician. That's to have good taste and be a music lover is almost more important than even being a musician. You know, so many artists I talk to who parents aren't musicians in the professional sense of the word, you know, they never got paid for a gig or anything, but they just had so much music around their house growing up. Oh, I, I, I would very much align with that. To um, to use music for what it's meant to be used for, which is to connect with your creativity and with your emotion. I mean, I, I remember from a very young age seeing our father cry over songs. And he still, like to this day, if we're at our parents' house, we're all sitting around listening to music and like chiding those who are talking over the music. Like we're definitely <laughs> that family. Um, and and seeing, seeing our parents connect so deeply emotionally with music, that was always a very thrilling experience as a kid. And it inspired, I think, our own interest in, in falling in love with music as well to have that. Like I wanted to cry over songs as a six year old. Cause it was like, I don't, why is he crying? Like, I want that. I'm like what's, what's going on. <laughs> was it a hard transition musically um, to go from the violin fretless uh, at piano, which of course isn't, but then to go to the stringed instruments that are tuned differently and have, you know, intervals uh, between the strings that change and you are strumming and picking as opposed to bowing? Or did it just sort of fall into place for you? 
I feel like there was some unbraiding that had to be done uh, coming from a classical world because we were so used to just reading music. And mm -hmm. it's all about, you You don't even reinterpret. You try to be as true to the original composer's idea of what the music should be. Um, whereas, you know, in Bluegrass, there was so much, like nothing is structured. Mm -hmm. um, it's all improvisation. So I think that that was probably the biggest shift for us. Yeah, mentally. Because we were, I, I guess, the biggest gift that classical did give us is ear training, one. And two, understanding how to practice, being willing to sit down and shed for many hours to to have that reward of the connection, the the mind-finger connection. Um, and, and honestly, for me, I think I had initially the easiest transition because I went from violin to mandolin, which is actually strung the same. Mm -hmm. I did have to learn how to use a pick. Um, but for many years, I was focused on playing the mandolin. I was a competition player. So I would, uh, well, that was my initial goal was to beat all the boys because <laughs> yeah. point, I guess it would have been 2004, five or six or something like that. And they had never had a girl win a lot of these major competitions. And so at Merlefest, that was my goal. I wanted to win. And I, and amazingly, I did after a couple of years of practicing really, really hard, went in and, and ended up. Um, Being the youngest and the first woman yeah. to ever. Wow. Which was a major feather in my cap. And so I think as very goal-oriented children, <laughs> that was only fuel to the fire. Um, but but I also started playing acoustic guitar at that point in time. But I, I only viewed myself as a rhythm player. So that's been something that later in life I've had to restructure yet again is to go from being just a bluegrass rhythm guitarist into a shred and rock and roller. But you you switched <laughs> over to, um, to Dobro, which is a very different can of beans. Yeah, I think I tried out um, fretted instruments and that didn't, I didn't connect with that very much. And I had never really uh, connected what Dobro was. Like we heard it a lot with Alison Krauss and then I saw it being played for the first time and that's when it kind of clicked that that's, that's the instrument I was looking for um, was the Dobro. And you know, listening to a lot of Jerry Douglas and just loving Jerry Douglas so much. Do you remember who the musician was, that first Dobro experience when you just saw what was going on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was actually um, a fantastic Dobro player in Chattanooga, Lou Womp. Mm. And he sat down and was playing it and I saw him playing it. And I was like, oh, that's the sound I've been looking for. Yeah, yeah, he's a fantastic player and actually um, taught me my first few lessons. So at what point you guys are taking these classical lessons, decide you want to go towards the bluegrass? At what point did you decide we need to put together a family band? <laughs> and what were your, you mentioned you were very goal oriented. What was your goal with, what did you want to accomplish with that band? I think we wanted attention more than anything else. Cause I mean, we were getting so much positive reinforcement. Um, I've heard that about you. <laughs> <laughs> so true. No, but I mean, and, and to be honest with you, I think it served us very well because at that point in time, we were being homeschooled. So we actually didn't have a whole, we were like some of those potentially very weird homeschool kids. We know our own. I support the weird homeschool community, but we were definitely like deeply a part of that. And so as, you know, 13, 14, 15 year olds, we were then making friends with adults who were bluegrass musicians. And so we had this really unlikely band of friends, you know, we're 14, 15 and we have, you know, a 50 year old playing with us and somebody in their mid forties and we're all jamming together. And so we had this kind of harem scarum 
outlet for fun. And, and I think it really served as well to have so many mentors and to understand the importance of having an adult outside of your parental units who is investing in you and having this really positive experience through music. So I think we were, we were just totally lit up by the whole experience, by the music, by, you know, by winning the competitions, by getting to play in front of people, by being able to more fully express ourselves through our music, because we had never considered songwriting until we got into bluegrass. And so then I was starting to make up my own songs and feeling really empowered by the experience. But I guess we wouldn't have really started a band until um, some family friends, uh, they invited us to send in a demo tape to a Prairie Home Companion. They were doing this um, teen talent competition on air. Mm. And we decided, okay, well, we'll, you know, record something together, just try it out. Uh, And that really solidified us being a band because we ended up going on that competition on the Prairie Home Companion. Yeah, so within within a good three to four year period, once we got into bluegrass, we started getting asked to come and play places because they were intrigued by the three girls singing the harmony. A lot of people thought that we were the young girls who sang the harmonies on uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And we were very sad to disappoint and tell them we that were not. not us. <laughs> that was not us. But uh, but yeah, I, whenever we whenever we submitted a demo tape to Garrison Keillor's A Prairie Home Companion, there was suddenly this kind of assumption that we were a, a real functioning band and very unintentional, but as it winds up having been some of the more important things to ever happened in our lives. Yeah. Suddenly we were a band. We <laughs> toured like almost full time that year. Yeah. Wow. As teenagers. Yeah. As 15, 16. Yeah. 15. 15 Jessica would have been about 20. And I think had we not had our big sister in the band, because we were so disorganized, we were just wanting to, we were just little <laughs> kids wanting to play around. And our big sister, she was, I think, more excited. She's a very managerial minded individual. And so she was really into, you know, building the tour itineraries and writing the emails. So she was like the de facto band manager. And, uh, and our parents were kind enough to allow us to go and to come with us in the family suburban. And, and again, I think it's so funny to look back in hindsight because we were doing it very professionally by, you know, by any sense of the word, but we never, none of us ever connected the fact that we were doing it professionally at that point in time. It was definitely a glorified hobby to our parents. So they were kind of up for the adventure because it was just a fun thing that we were doing all together. Um, and I, I don't think that they, again, as I said previously, ever intended us to be professional musicians. So here we are as 30 year olds and surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's interesting too, because your story reminds me a little bit of Nickel Creek in mm. the sense that there's siblings, Yeah, you know, it was a trio, but two of them are siblings and they started in the bluegrass community very, very young as well. And uh, it seems then, now that I'm hearing this from you, that the bluegrass community can be supportive to young people coming out and playing music and touring, whereas I don't know how many parents in their right mind would let their young teenagers join a rock band or doom metal band or, you know, and travel in that world. <laughs> so the bluegrass community seems nurturing, I'm hearing. Well, and I, to be honest with you, I can't speak as to the the element of nurturing within those other communities since we didn't have the experience. Yeah. But I guess it depends on what you're looking for. Um, but I, I do strongly believe that the bluegrass discipline is incredibly beneficial um, 
for a lot of young people. I've seen so many fantastic musicians begin in bluegrass and go on to achieve incredible things. And especially in terms of the female perspective, I mean, because you have Sarah Jarose and Nickel Creek and, you know, Sarah Watkins from, from Nickel Creek and uh, Sierra Hull. There's a lot Molly of Tuttle. Molly Tuttle, a lot of really influential young females coming up in bluegrass that are really making some waves in the music industry. Um, so I, I appreciate the format of bluegrass and, uh, and definitely feel very passionately about trying to, to do what we can to inspire people to go and be a part because it's definitely not the cool thing to do. And um, there is always this, this danger of these older art forms not feeling as relevant and therefore falling off the map because young people aren't getting involved. So again, with the blues and the bluegrass formats trying to, to be ambassadors to the next generation, that th there's really something powerful and meaningful here. You should check it out. Mm -hmm. And we can thank Alison Krauss, I think, for leading the female charge, you know, with her Absolutely. unbelievable voice and unbelievable fiddle playing, you know. Uh, what, 15 years before Nickel Creek pops out or something like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, with, with Alison Krauss and Rhonda Vincent and... I mean, there's there's quite quite a cadre of of powerful female front persons in in bluegrass that uh, we definitely count as big inspirations. I want to go back to you guys mentioned, you know, very young you were uh, learned how to read music, played classical music, then you drift over into bluegrass, which it, it can be a largely improvisatory yeah. art form. When did you guys first kind of wrap your minds around the art of improvisation when it Ooh. came to bluegrass? When you did, when you were expected to play something that, that off the top of your head that wasn't black dots on a page in front of you? Personally, I found that a very terrifying experience, actually, because <laughs> it was so foreign. So for, for many years, I was very uncomfortable and would get very nervous. And uh, interestingly, one of the parts, it was like mo most of these competitions that you would perform in, they had like different rounds where you had to perform a, a prepared piece and then you had to jam and then you had to perform another prepared piece. And I was always just like incredibly stressed about the improvisation piece because it was so foreign. And, and it just took, I think, a lot of um, hours of getting in a jam and being willing to fail and fail and fail and fail and get stuck and not think of where to go next and, and be surrounded by people who were supportive and not being judgmental of, of those failures. I'm air quoting failures because it's, it's absolutely not failure. It's, it's learning. It's figuring out it, you know, getting on the bike and falling off a few times, but it definitely took um, some stick to and many years. <laughs> still learning how to do that. Yeah. Know? Um, it's taking your, it's taking kind of you out of the equation, like allowing it just to be like brain to finger. Um, Cause if you, the moment you start like thinking about what you're playing when you're jamming and improvising, mm. like you get stuck. Yeah. You can get stuck. Or even worse, judging yourself as you do it. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a real pitfall for me is we'll be on stage even now. And this is 15 years beyond where we, you know, initially started learning and be on stage and you go for something and then you're like oh you can't you can't pull that off what are you doing and you can totally cripple your experience and that's not good you know you don't want to take your legs out at the knees when you're trying to, to to jam so if I could give any advice to myself back then I would say go for it just no one like it's just not a big deal if you miss a note just go for it and you guys had this like great family support system where you guys could just sit together and just practice together 
Absolutely. I think our connection as sisters from a very young age, because we were always sitting and making music endlessly, it was all that we wanted to do. And and finally enough, here we are all these years later, and it's still what we spend the majority of our time doing, just sitting and coming up with with music together. Having a partner in crime has been key, Mm -hmm. I think, in, in developing our individual and collective voice as artists. Did uh, did your sister stick with music? It wasn't her passion. Yeah. You really enjoyed the uh, business side of it. Mm-hmm. Oh. Not as much the music side. And I think traveling full time wasn't, you, you have to really, really want it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, because, yeah, touring can be very difficult. So yeah. it was. Did, did she follow mom and dad's footsteps and become a doctor? No, she's more in the entrepreneurial field. She's all over That's the cool. map. She's probably the, the brightest of all, the brightest star of the sisters. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but we, I think we're very, very grateful to the support that she provided to us. I mean, she taught us everything that we know. She taught me how to make a spreadsheet and how to keep track of where the money was on the road and <laughs> like, all these things that are key that, that people don't oftentimes tell you is a, is a large part of your job as a, that could be just as important as knowing your arpeggios. It's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's not as sexy, but Hey, yeah. Hey. <laughs> so, uh, will there be? I'm gonna wrap up with this question. Will there be another Larkin Poe slash Level Sisters bluegrass record? I would point? love that. Nothing would make me happier. Oh, I could see it happening for sure. I was actually okay. before we got on the call with y'all. Um, I was just playing Megan a bluegrass song that I'd written yesterday. So, hey, it's alive and it is it's well. coming. All right, we have it on record. There will be a bluegrass record in the future. Can't wait. <laughs> Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us this week. We're going to have them back the rest of this week. They're going to be our guests. So uh, we'll talk to you on Wednesday. Can't wait.